Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Trisha Curtis here, CEO of Petros and host of the Petros Podcast. Welcome back to the Petros Podcast. This is episode 91 of the Petros Podcast. I am super pumped about it. And I am, as I'm pumped about all episodes, but we're nearing to that 100 mark, so I'm getting pretty excited. Uh, but today is Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. There is a massive amount of, of data and inf- intel and market volatility taking place right now. If you've seen commodity prices, whether that's oil prices or copper or seen, you know, heard about Fed minutes coming out from the Federal Reserve or Treasury yields or all the slug of data that has come out in the last couple of days on China, you were probably relatively overwhelmed. So the Petronerds podcast has you covered as this Petronerds. I walk my clients through this on a detailed basis, but we are going to dive into a massive amount of data and information today. And this is really a podcast about the U.S. economy and all the information coming out of the U.S. and China. We are going to have start focusing really heavily on China and talking about a ton of information and giving some background and color of what's going on in China and why this looming recession is really far closer than, you know, it may be taking a while for it to really impact and really hit and punch, but it's far closer and it's much more reality than people think. So, to begin with this, uh, to begin with the data and the timestamps, we're adding a couple new ones. Um, but WTI right now is 79.14. We're seeing Brent at 83.45. Obviously, we've come off significantly from this. We, you know, touching 83 dollar uh, WTI. We have come off in the last couple of weeks, and we're definitely that is despite um, we, geopolitical volatility, um, the stuff that Russia has been pulling in the Black Sea, um, the ongoing war in Ukraine, really actually heating up in many with many regards, um, and that is despite uh, lots, I mean, actually seeing declining inventories in the U.S. Um, so we're really seeing some softening, which is one, based on thin tra- thinner than normal trading volumes because it's August um, and it's summer months. And so we see thinner thinner trading volumes, which Bloomberg is not actually reporting anymore. Um, and it's uh, we are also seeing a lot of w- this weakness in China really making driving fears and concerns and probably a lot of algorithmic and computerized trading as well. So Henry Hobb, 260. Um, we are seeing Dutch TTF at 1210. So we have seen some recovery in Dutch TTF, and that is largely driven on what's happening with potential strikes um, and issues within Australia. So if Australia, if some of that stuff, if they're, they're striking on the LNG side and people are, you know, we're seeing uh, them not reaching a mediation or a particular negotiation, and we see LNG come offline in Australia, remember that you... you Qatar, Australia, and the U.S., we all export about the same amount. It's roughly, right, 12, 13 BCF a day that we're all exporting to the global market. And um, that is a, it's a 50, as of 2021, that, that was a 50 BCF a day global LNG market. All of us are sort of equal right now in those exports. So if some of that comes offline because of wage issues, and um, which is happening all over the world, um, but if some of that comes offline, that means serious price increases, potential serious price increases, especially for Europe, which is why we're seeing Dutch TTF and dollars per MMB BTU rise is because that means that China would be uh, China would be taking the same amount, and then as Europe is the marginal buyer, and those prices are going to go up. So we are seeing um, if you look at the futures prices, and I, I caution you know always caution clients as well as as listeners on futures prices. 
because futures prices are just an indicator of what the market is telling you they think the future prices are today and those shift on a daily basis so if tomorrow uh gas natural gas prices dutch etf goes down those future prices are likely to go down with it um however that being said future prices right now for january of 2024 are at 18 bucks so they are telling us right now there's concern in the market. Um, and there are reasons you can use a futures prices as an indicator for how people are thinking about the market. And it is, it, it's useful to look at. So with that being said, we also have potential for Australia. If you saw the Tellurian note today, they put a little note out and it was talking about um, Western Australia potentially not being able to export Western LNG. So that LNG would have to be absorbed by Western Australia. That would have implications to the market for sure. And our other time, Sam, so I'm adding copper to this. I'm going to get to the 10-year yield and the 30-year mortgage rate because that is a big portion of this podcast, talking about the U.S. economy and all that data. Um, but the copper prices, I think, are really important to talk about because they are, as a commodity, um, and just like crude oil, they are a potential forward-looking indicator for recession. And I don't think enough people have, and economists are really paying attention to the softness we're seeing in some of these commodity prices. So if you're looking at copper prices, you will see that they have really seen some, they had this massive spike up post 2020. And a lot of that is, I, I, I believe a lot of that is hype driven, right? That was post COVID recovery, but how much that post COVID recovery were we really rip roaring? I mean, in the U S for sure, building stuff, but you use it for all kinds of components. And it is a big portion of China's, it, it is a big portion of industrial consumption as well as housing and construction. So the fact that we're seeing some real softness in copper prices tells us a lot about what's actually going on in China. And it should be telling us a lot about what the economy is going to look like in the future as well, meaning recession is coming uh, because commodity prices tend to indicate that. Okay, so copper prices right now are at $3.70 per pound. Um, now, if, for context, they were, if you look at March of 2022, um, they were nearing basically $5 per pound. Um, so w around $5 per pound. And then we've come off uh, as of January, or sorry, July 31st, we were about $4 per pound. So you can see that, that we've had some weakness and erosion. And if you look at those charts, they're not completely dissimilar than crude oil. So we've definitely seen that. That's something you pay attention to. Put that in your back pocket. Um, if you're flipping through articles, whether you know in various news sources, you will see a lot of copper connection in terms of the components of how it makes up and how much it's used in the property sector within China. And obviously with, with Chinese property data this week being really poor and sales coming down, not just for property, retail sales, you name it, everything coming off in China, but definitely on the property side, um, the copper is a very relevant indicator right now. Okay, and then the U.S. we have, which we'll be getting into in more depth, but I have to timestamp this with, we are seeing the 30-year fixed more, the 30-year mortgage, fixed rate mortgage at 7.34%. That is a massive amount. And I have done some calculations for you just to put this in context because what um, of how much of a price increase this is and why this is so important to think about in terms of the U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer. Um, along with this rise, we've really, the reason we're seeing this, this rate increase in mortgages is really on the back of the 10-year the 10-year yield. So if you are looking at US treasuries or, or you're looking at um you know yields treasury yields, you are seeing the the uh, 3 month up, you're seeing the 6 month up. So almost uh, they're almost about the same. They're almost 5 
550 you're seeing for the the six month treasury about 544 for the uh three month treasury 12 month treasury is at 536 but the 10 year treasury is at 425 and that's really what folks are paying attention to they're looking at the two year and the 10 year and those inversions and what they mean for recession indicators but that 10 year at 425 is what is driving that has really gone up and that's what's driving the um the 30 year mortgage rate which is highly correlated is driving that up and just for this perspective and we'll, we'll come back to lots of stuff going on um, in the U.S. economy, but I want to front load this with thinking of, put this in the back of your mind of the rate increases of 7.34% in comparison to say uh, 3%, which is what a lot of folks uh, tied their mortgages to, or say even 4%. So I, I put this in a mortgage calculator. This does not include your HOA or your mortgage uh, you know, insurance or anything like that. It's just principal and interest. So for a $500,000 mortgage, and yes, a lot of people do have $500,000 mortgages, but those are probably lessening given that might be a jumbo mortgage. Um, a $500,000 mortgage at 4% interest at a 30-year fixed rate um, the total cost is 859000 and change. Um, the total interest is 359000 and change. And your payment is, uh, your monthly payment, again, just principles and interest, is about $2,400 a month. It's $2,387 per month. That's at 4%. Okay. Now, bring this up to, re and we were not at 4% that long ago. We're talking months ago we were at 4%. And now we are at 7.34%. So if you put in that mortgage calculator of that $500,000 a month uh, loan that you're taking out, this is why we're seeing housing in the state that it's in right now, um, that is a total cost of $1.238 um, million and change. And it is a total interest cost of $738,000 and change. So nearly a million dollars in interest. Um, and a payment of $3,441 per month. So you can see that's a $1,000 a month payment increase, not including all the other things. So that's already, you know, $1,000 a month more. You are starting to get people, you're knocking people out that aren't going to have the credit scores, not going to be qualified or not making enough money. And again, lots of people have been doing this, right? We still see, we still see mortgages taking place, but if you look at mortgage applications in the U.S., they've dropped significantly. If you look at um, actual refinancing, they've dropped massively. Um, so, and then we're starting to see this downtrend in housing. It, it's been very resilient. Housing prices are still going up. We see that in shelter costs in the U.S. and U.S. inflation data. But what we're actually seeing, is, I think, you're, we're starting to hit a point in the in the cycle and the point of how we're having higher interest rates that a lot of folks simply aren't not going to be approved to even have that. So you do see a lot of housing staying. Even Denver is a, still a very hot housing market. Um, but those existing homes, that they take a month or so to actually turn around. I mean, you just don't have the same as many offers because, yes, the prices are roughly the same or haven't gone up dramatically um, in places hot like Denver, but your mortgage payments have gone up probably a thousand, if not more a month. And that's really problematic when we think about where's the direction of the economy going. That works or maybe works if everybody keeps their job. It doesn't if people start losing their jobs. So if everybody, and that's what we're actually seeing, and we'll, we'll keep on this housing trend and I'll, I'm going to switch gears to inflation in just a second for the US economy. And then we're going to dive into what's going on within China and why this all really matters for oil prices. Um, so if we're thinking about the US housing market and what you you have seen a, a shift down, uh, lots of pretty positive housing sentiment. Um, you know, there's the, if you're actually looking at the housing data in terms of apartment builds versus actual US um, single family home builds, they're telling a different story. Um, and they're telling you that they're leading indicators of recession and they're telling you that we've already tipped down into the single family homes um, and also these rising interest rates are 
impacting, they're going to start impacting the ability to actually borrow money and for construction. So we're still seeing construction of, of housing units, and that is probably problematic. It means that if, if we see this maintained uh, interest rate prices, the affordability for a lot of people is just going to be completely priced out, um, and you're just not going to see housing move nearly as much. And that really starts impacting diesel demand and uh, all kinds of other things, the demand that goes into housing. But you will start seeing that um, in demand for for domestic diesel demand and therefore for commodity prices and crude oil. And this housing data is and these shelter costs are, are a huge component of U.S. inflation data. So um, I what you probably saw most recently, because we had U.S. inflation data come out last week, and but you saw today or the last 24 hours is U.K. inflation data. Um, and something that the Fed actually mentioned in their Fed minutes was other countries and their inflation and how this is what's going on with emerging markets and what's going on with other countries. But U.K. inflation data was 6.9%. Um, it was... Ex- in line somewhat with expectations, but it basically has not come down. You're seeing very, very high energy costs in in the UK, very hotter than expected um, service costs. So basically they are seeing the highest rate increase for labor costs in history of the highest um, rate increase. So people are getting more money, but it's basically being offset with all this inflation. And it's that creates a potential wage price spiral, which is something we really, really do not want in the US, but something we're actually, we are seeing very sticky and stubborn service cost inflation, which really has not come down massively. It's coming down a little bit, but not significantly. And that is the same with, with housing costs, with shelter costs. Shelter uh, shelter costs or housing costs are still at 7.7% for the latest inflation read in the U.S. So that is still up massively. We're not seeing that anywhere close to the 2% target for the Fed. And we're that means that uh, creates this this cycle that we've talked about in previous podcasts and I talk about with clients is that if you have still have very these very high housing costs, which are going to be maintained when you have these really high interest rates and therefore you don't have a lot of people moving or putting houses on the market and a lot of inventory, then you're driving up uh, rental costs as well. We're seeing rental costs at incredible highs, which is a really, really painful for people to um, just to live, meaning most of their money, and Target talks about this in the earnings call, is that most of their money is going to these I, the, the most important stuff, right? It's housing, it's food, and it's fuel, which means they don't have a lot of discretionary income to be spending other places. And that's why I think the data points when people are talking about, you know, Beyonce's concerts and Taylor Swift and the Barbie movie and all this massive spending and the service sector, we have to be thinking about where is that money con- coming from, largely from credit card debt, I think, and where also what's what's going on within the economy to allow folks to have so much spending and so much craziness on on experiences and on travel. And a lot of that is the work from home and the flexible work from home. And on the backdrop of that and behind that is that you're starting to really see some significant pushback by businesses who, you know, yes, people want their want to work from home and they want that flexibility, but businesses are seeing that it, they are seeing lower productivity um, and lower productivity is is way overweighing um, the ability to actually get people to work for them. So if you're offering people a flexible work from home lifestyle, the ability to get them to come into your work is great, but you're offsetting, you're losing on the productivity side. So that's really important. And I think when we start thinking about all these data points collectively together, what's going in the US, what's going with China, credit card debt, spending, lack of productivity, this really starts weighing up into a picture that is not good for the overall economy and turn not good for oil prices. But to wrap up on U.S. inflation, we are seeing, a, you know, we th- saw 3.2%. We are seeing a somewhat of a drop in, in U.S. inflation, but the service, the sticky stuff, the core stuff in services um, and housing has been, has been maintained. And it has really been led by this drop in energy. And unfortunately, last month, that drop wasn't as significant. So we are seeing, if you're looking at the month over month, we actually saw 
you know, energy prices come up a little bit. And so when we see oil prices coming up, that is a problem for, that's a problem for, for headline inflation, but that's also, then that gets into food and everything. And so that's a problem globally. And I think what we're seeing is um, oil prices coming off is not necessarily a resistance to um, 86 Brent that we saw, but it is, uh, there is something to realize that we don't have the, the, we don't have the same healthy, as healthy of an economy that we had a year ago in 2022. Um, we don't have that now. So when we see rising oil prices in a deteriorating economy, that is problematic. And the reason oil prices have risen is largely from those OPEC cuts. Um, there, it is not largely from this rampant demand driven. And I think we're seeing some real problems in terms of deciphering this, these oil price gains um, and everyone's saying how great and resilient China has been over the last six months of first half of the year. And really the reality that we're seeing in the data points, I don't think they add up. They truly don't. You cannot have the demand-driven, um, rip-roaring economy in China that has led the demand growth in oil um, and also have stockpiling. And we have seen a, you know, what we've seen China do is import a lot of Iranian crude oil. You've seen articles talk about that where they're getting a $10 discount on Iranian crude at one and a half million barrels per day that they're importing. The, the reality is all of Iranian's crude exports are going to China. That is one and a half million barrels per day, if not more, if not pushing two million barrels per day at times. And that is way more. It's They're selling it at way more than a $10 discount. We don't know what they're selling it for. Um, and then they're getting well north of two million barrels per day from Russia. And they are stockpiling a lot of this. So there's some really serious indicators. Now, China could be doing that for a couple of reasons. One is to uh, protect, you know, helping with inflation, capturing those gains why they're why that stuff is cheap, but also, uh, you know, fudging the data to make it look like they're importing a lot more and their economy is doing good. And it's also for resiliency. It is also for security and security of supply so that they can uh, weather different storms if they want to go, uh, if they want to venture into Taiwan or, or do a, a short protracted war in Taiwan or something like that or blockade around Taiwan, that they would actually have uh, crude, crude oil security at least for a few months because they have a lot of crude oil in stockpiles. And the data that comes in that we're seeing that the economy that you're you're seeing the stock market sell off, you're seeing it sell off in China, you're seeing it sell off in the U.S., and you're seeing this really weigh on crude oil prices. And as I mentioned, we have thinner than normal. I mean, it's August, so we have thinner, you know, traded volumes on crude oil. So get, these moves get exacerbated. Um, but the fact that we had inventory drawdowns in the U.S., um, both on a product side and on a crude oil side, and we have this geopolitical risk premium really weighing on crude oil, especially with Russia and the Black Sea and and Russia, you know. Um, boarding a cargo on Sunday, um, but not doing thing. The fact that we have all this taking place and this ramp up in this war in Ukraine, and that's not where the, the, the momentum is for the market. The fact that we're still seeing that sell off in crude tells you there's stuff going on in China. And that's because as I, you know, I talked to folks about this a lot is that, you know, all these, this data is out there, right? And so when we think of these black swan events, it's really not a black swan. The data has been out there. You're literally, you're looking at a pond right now and there's all these swans and there's a black swan in there. It's been coming up to you for a while but you just now seeing it, right? It's It's been there. And that's what happens when we have sell-offs or crises or anything or contagion risks is that typically it's just that the data is there and people really start paying attention to it. Now, the contagion risks within China are pretty serious because the slug of data, and why I think this is so important to think about, is the slug of data is just bad and it continues to be bad. And I'm not sure if everyone was just thinking, hey, it's going to get better. Um, and they ripped off the zero COVID, COVID band-aid and everyone was expecting that uh, China would stimulate. I mean, apart from just giving people money and, and doing this helicopter money and doing what like the US did, um, they're not, 
that really probably wouldn't do much. They would have to be going on a massive growth spend and spending money and incurring lots more debt and building buildings that people aren't living in um, to incur this. And they just don't have it. So the real problem within China is that retail sales are down and um, housing is down. And so price decreases and youth unemployment. I mean, we have lots of data points that are scary, but youth unemployment, which they put out last month at over 21%, one youth unemployment, twenty-one um, percent is a really, really high number. It's higher than even other emerging markets, and China is a major economy, even though it is an emerging market in a developing country. That's a really, really high number. That number is probably not real. We know that China, uh, the most economists and people actually within China would even say that it's probably between thirty and forty percent. So that's a youth unemployment of ages sixteen to twenty-four that could be as high as as. 30%, if not 40%, that's massive. That's basically 100 million people. Um, and that's tens of millions of people that don't have work. Now, China said they were not just yesterday or in, within the past 48 hours, China said they weren't going to release that data point anymore. This is a lot of Chinese data that you know they were releasing that they're not going to release anymore. We know that they were fudging those numbers before, but now they're not even going to try to fudge the numbers. You're just not going to see the data. So now they're saying they're not going to release the youth unemployment number because it's not a good indicator of the economy. And what's really sad is that when you hear listen to CNBC world and you hear the late night commentary, they go along with it. And they're like, oh yeah, that's not a very good indicator. And you're like, what? This is one, it wasn't a very good indicator because it wasn't real, but holy crap, it, you need use unemployment 16 to 24. It is telling you a lot, telling you that your recent graduates don't have jobs, which means that your economy is not growing and you're not adding to the workplace. And this is in, on the backdrop of these massive demographic issues where you don't have a lot of youth in China in the first place. So, or this rising and you have a, a, a growing elderly population. And so what's happening when you hear retail sales and housing not doing well, what's happening is a lot of these people, and you're seeing some decent coverage by the BBC and actually the economists on this of, of their podcasting, is you're hearing about the folks within China. You're hearing about students that were, you know, have a master's degree from Columbia University in, in the U.S. They're going back to China. They can speak English. They can speak Chinese. They have a degree, and they're thinking they're going to find a job, and they're not even getting job interviews. And the, the jobs, they're basically saying, hey, you're going to work six days a week, and you're going to work 12 hours days um, and you're going to get a lot less pay because uh, it's it's an employer's market right now or, or sorry it's a, it is an employer's market because Chinese there's a lot of people applying for jobs and um, the these employers have the pick of the litter and they can pick whatever they want so that's telling you a lot it's telling you that and we're hearing that these young people are just actually they're living with their parents which means their parents have this burden and of having a young adult in their household this is not dissimilar from what we saw in the US between 2008 and you know 2010 when we saw the peak unemployment and throughout 2012 and when Obama came into office he had this very sluggish economy um, because of all the you know the lack of of business incentives that were in place. And so we, we've we experienced this in the US and this is, you know, thinking about what this means for China, what this means for the global economy, what you're actually seeing is all this stuff, um, the worries about this and the contagion is that if China slows down, yes, it's, uh, you know, we weren't really seeing the interpretation of say the Evergrande issues, we'll get into Country Garden in a moment. We're seeing that interpretation, I think, taken fully seriously into the market of what the contagion risk was. Cause people said, okay, well, Maybe there's a property issue within China, but really with that spread to the rest of the world, it's pretty insulated and China's been decoupling. 
Yes, but that means that China impacts Asia for sure. And so when you see Asia slow down, that has a real impact for oil prices, a real impact for commodity prices, because Asia is the developing part of the world. It's this, this, the global south and the developing world. Is that's, those are the growth drivers for oil and commodities. Um, and so if China is really slowing down to the extent that they could be and are, that means that we are going to see a slowdown in Asia as well. And the impact on these countries is going to be significant. And that is why I think you're seeing greater fears within the market. Okay, so with regards to China's housing slowdown, now we did see that, so Country Garden is the largest property developer. It was two years ago that you heard about Evergrande, which is the second largest property developer, and you know all these missing bond payments. And something you, you need to be putting, taking, you know, putting in the back of your mind is, is um, that, a couple, that China is, putting through a few different things right now. It's that, you know, they're taking haircuts. It's the foreigners that are taking haircuts, right? The foreign bondholders took all the haircuts so far on all those on the, all those bond payments for Evergrande and all the other real estate um, entities and property developers that didn't make their payments, right? Those have been basically largely foreigners that have taken that. And then you have all these espionage laws being put into place right now where um, companies are and individuals can actually get in trouble for um for basically giving foreigners uh, intel or information and so we are already hearing about parents or children um talking about their parents or turning them in now this is probably anecdotal there's not a lot of validation to this obviously um but it's it's pretty serious when we're starting to hear about this on even on an anecdotal basis this harkens back to sort of the cultural revolution not nearly to that extent um in in the mao era but the fact that it's taking place under in the backdrop of a very weakening economy i think is pretty serious and we also saw there's a commentator that gets on CNBC pretty regularly, um, and he's I, I really disagree with his his perspective because I think it's very very biased uh, toward his clients within China and elsewhere that have exposure to China. But he's an American. He's based in Shanghai. Um, I've talked about him before. I'm blanking on it, the name of his con consulting firm. But he was on CNBC the other night, and he was talking about how the blame for the economic concerns, this use unemployment, the pains within the Chinese economy that he's seeing are actually going to the U.S. government are going to the Biden administration and to America because we are the ones that have imposed sanctions and these trade restrictions. And so the blame is going to us um, and not to the Chinese government. And I'm sure that's what is being spun in what you're hearing within China. Um, and that means that the risk of rising nationalism and the risk of needing to do something by the Chinese government rises sort of, I think that doesn't mean a threat of an invasion of Taiwan or a blockade of Taiwan is imminent, but it does mean that it's definitely, definitely rising. So, sorry, scooting back to the, uh, moving back to the Evergrande Country Garden thing. So, Country Garden, what happened last few days was that Country Garden said um, it is going to miss bond payments, or it, it, it likely is going to miss bond payments of several billion dollars. So, Country Garden, the largest property developer in China, is going to miss bond payments. They suspended bond trading, um, and so that really did spook markets, and that was on the back of you know, housing price data that came in um, poor and month, you know, two months of, of, of lower housing price data. And this is in tandem with, you know, restricting not having the youth unemployment data. They did show the unemployment data, which uh, retail sales was down. They showed unemployment over north of 5%. That, that number is completely ridiculous. Just like youth unemployment, that actually only captures urban. Um, so they have a, a, a thing called the HOKU system where they designate 
Chinese popula- the Chinese population designated as urban and rural, you still have several hundred million people in the rural category, and that's not captured within the uh, unemployment data. So when you have 5.4%, if that was even real, that's just the urban population. That doesn't include the rural population, which could be much higher. And also, we know that's just a load of hogwash. That's not, that's not uh, we know it's well north of that. So all this data comes in, it's really poor. And then what we see is the uh, the contagion risk, not just for these Asian economies that people are starting to get concerned about, but the contagion that people are starting to talk about, and you're hearing in articles, is these shadow banks. And so they have names, I can't really pronounce them. I'm not even going to try. This one's pronounced this, the shadow bank that Bloomberg has an article, you'll see it elsewhere. It's a Zonggrong, it's Z-H-O-N-G-R-O-N-G. Um, so this entity basically is a shadow bank. It, it is a wealth entity that basically, you know, grabbed people's money, offered them a guaranteed 7%, and now is saying they're not going to pay them back. Um, and has essentially come out and said, hey, because of the market, we're not going to be paying back these interest rates. So people aren't able to access their money. They're not getting the money that they were promised. Um, and that means that if you just think about that, of how much money has been really tied up in this, the, the reality is that shadow banks were very heavily tied to the real estate sector, very tied to the property sector. The property sector is at least one-fifth of the Chinese economy. That has been, uh, you know, cratering for the last three years. So cumulatively, how well is the Chinese economy doing? Probably not very well, but we're just starting to really, these data points are really starting to sink in. And so if you have all the shadow banking where um, people were investing in this uh, and that now they're not getting their money out, this was a very, uh, it was a Ponzi scheme. Essentially, you know, you had the property developers as well as wealth entities like this that were basically robbing Peter to pay Paul and they're taking in money, they're promising, you know, they're cycling it out and they're doing these wealth entities and they're spinning it back out. It was working when property prices were going up and these property developers were having you pay on your mortgage before your house was even built. And now those houses aren't getting built and people have stopped paying on their mortgages. So now we have this whole cycle, this, this whole um, thing that was uh, House of Cards is basically collapsing. And, you know, I think there was a lot of thinking that China could keep this going um, and China could keep they, they could basically just you know, throw a bunch of money at this and and print a bunch of money and give it to their people, you know, helicopter money, and then they could do this property stuff. And that may be enough for the uh, lack, the non-intelligent investors um, on the, you know, in the, on the U.S. and Western side to say, oh, it's going to be fine for the next couple of years, but it doesn't really matter. The underlying weaknesses of the Chinese economy are really, really serious. And when you think about uh, the complexities, what's happening within China with regards to these espionage laws um, that are taking place, and they do impact energy. So not just as the property sector and the collapse in prices and the, you know, the real economy impacting energy prices and really telling us, you know, are, are oil prices being somewhat artificially inflated right now, given that we don't know the extent to the weaknesses within China and that maybe Chinese imports, a lot of this has been stockpiling, I think is a big question mark. But when we start thinking about what's also going in the energy space, uh, that's really serious. So on the energy side, we have seen China, the state, uh, Chinese state entities, the Communist Party, come out and say that they are um, they are restricting information for and concerned about um, information from the green the energy sector, the green energy sector, and the the oil and gas sector. Everything in regarding energy leaking out, so they're concerned about those leaks. Now, that's important to think about in context of how important the energy sector has become to China. So, I have talked about this at length in previous podcasts. Talked about a lot with with clients, but really, when you think about the coal consumption that China has, I mean, more coal consumption than any country in the entire world, more emissions than any country in the entire world, and how they really have energy security with regards to their their grid reliability from a coal standpoint. That if they if they need, they are building out coal-fired power plants um, like Gangbusters. They have over um, 
over 5,000 terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation, and they have, they're adding to this significantly for that energy security and producing all this coal. Now, they are also producing a massive amount of renewable energy, not just for uh, domestic consumption, but for exports. And they were hoping and have said publicly that they would like to basically the same equate say their property sector is basically two trillion of the of the two trillion dollars of the Chinese economy. They were hoping by 2025 that the green sector, the green economy, would be basically almost two trillion. 1.7 trillion dollars is what worth that as well. So basically they were looking to green energy to offset that. So it is important to think about this in context of how important this sector is. And so much of their exports have been green tech lately. I mean, whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's solar um, or wind power generation to Europe, they're exporting a massive amount of this. And this, yes, they're exporting a lot of this at a loss, and I'll talk about that in a second, but also ties them really tightly with, with Europe and keeps those ties really, really embedded so that it's uh, difficult for countries in, within Europe to sanction them or hurt them in any way and, and detangle those ties. So it allows China to get away with a lot domestically, like the internment of Uyghurs, like forced labor, like very, very cheap labor for particularly these products that they're consuming. So you can see how um, it's important for them, and if they're if they're making these concerns, if they're you know even talking about concerns about espionage or or spying or, or intel coming out of the energy sector, and they're concerned about this, yes, this could be Chinese Communist Party paranoia and really not amount to much. But it also means that one, they see energy as an important sector, and they see vulnerabilities, and there are serious vulnerabilities there. If you are thinking about how you would hurt China, energy is a is is an area where you could really hurt them, and it is something that they've always been concerned about in terms of their imports of crude oil, in terms of their, it's a reason why they do not produce and consume a lot of natural gas because they don't produce it. They didn't want to import it. So they use very, very, very little natural gas, which is why their, uh, their net zero plans and their green ambition plans are a load of, of absolute horse crap because they, if they wanted to lower their emissions, they would be using natural gas in droves, which they're not. And they're not doing that because of energy security reasons. So when you're hearing about espionage concerns on the energy sector, and then you think about the importance of the energy sector to China and being that China is the largest importer of oil in the world, um, this is really, really serious and something that should be, uh, should be, you know, alarm bells should be hitting off people and something to put, again, uh, one of the many, many things I think to put in back your mind and, and back pocket. And something I actually just heard on, um, I don't love a lot of the BBC coverage on energy because it very tilts very, uh, it, it, it's very biased and tilts toward uh, the climate change craziness in terms of the, the fears on global boiling and everything. And it's very biased in terms of the energy transition and the lack of reality of actual investment in the oil and gas space. However, you do always get a lot of interesting nuggets. And just today on the latest uh, BBC World Business Report, they were talking about um, the one year on in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. And this is a nice little pivot uh, to the U.S., which we'll get to. But this is a one year of one year on into the, Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which is a, you know, everybody brags about is this massive amount of spending into, um, on, into uh, green tech and climate change. Anything with a massive amount of spending, folks, is not an Inflation Reduction Act. By, by in large, it is inherently inflationary because it is spending. Um, so but we heard was this solar company in Germany who actually, and this is particular for Colorado, the solar company in Germany actually changed their plans and their investments in Germany, took their equipment from Germany, and they're taking it to Colorado because of the incentives in, in the US. Now, there are tax breaks, massive incentives, and this is something that Europe is, is really concerned about is their ability to compete on the green side because of all the incentives and the tax breaks and the subsidies that is being given um, in America. And this is problematic because it means that you're going to have a dis, you're basically throwing a lot of 
good money after bad energy, low BT, BTU energy. So the ability to get that solar energy into, into this light bulb that you're seeing in this house is, is going to be extremely expensive. It's going to take a lot of that copper and a lot of that, um, a, a lot of transmission lines and everything to get it built, uh, which is going to be expensive, which is going to be costly and time consuming, probably won't happen, but it probably will be wasteful. Now, that all being said, we, we know that and people that listen to this podcast and, and even that don't know that. But what's interesting was this German solar company was talking about the laws in place in America. Now, I think he's wrong in terms of the enforcement of these laws, but at least on paper, we have them. So we do have, we were supposed to ban imports from the province of Xinjiang, from the province the, the, where they're having Uyghur um, internment camps and concentration camps and forced labor and using labor to actually, forced labor to actually make these solar panels, these wind turbines, these electric vehicles, um, a lot of the processed metals and minerals that you're seeing all coming out of the province of Xinjiang. So we do have a ban on this, cotton included, but we haven't really enforced it. And the Biden administration actually said that they're going to continue to take solar panels um, from Malaysia, Vietnam, and all these other countries. Malaysia and Vietnam do not make solar panels. They all are all coming from China, and they're almost exclusively coming from the province of Zhejiang. And they're coming at very, very cheap costs. And something the solar manufacturer in, in Germany mentioned was that the U.S. has these laws in place for the um, for forced labor, and he was really equating this actually to the cost side. Is that you know from that from a human rights standpoint, this is serious, and that uh, Europe does not even have this. But from a forced labor standpoint, it's really important because the costs are so cheap. So he was saying that China has flooded the European market with all these products, and therefore, as a European company, they cannot compete. And that's partly why they went, went to Colorado or coming to the U.S., um, because the subsidies and everything, but also because these laws are in place. And that's that's really serious to think about. It means that you know China is flooding the market with these products in Europe, and they're, they're he basically said they're below cost. And we know this. But folks, the only reason they can get those below costs is because they are not paying for the labor. And if you are looking, I know I've mentioned this, but please take a look at the evidence papers from Sheffield University that are on their websites that talk about this, that talk about the forced labor and the reasons and incentive behind this is because they don't have the labor. You know, they don't have people coming into enough of these. Now, yes, they have young people, which we mentioned high unemployment, but these are educated young people and they don't want to labor. So this solves a problem for them and it allows them to flood the market with this stuff um, and keep your very, very entrenched. So hugely problematic and very, very entrenched in, in when it comes to energy, forced labor, China, the province of Xinjiang, Europe, and then now obviously the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act and seeing foreign companies like German solar companies come to Colorado. Now, you can say that's good for maybe Colorado jobs. Uh, we'll see. I think it's important to be thinking about, is this good energy? And I think we're throwing good money after very bad energy and very bad poor forms of energy. You know, I think a lot of folks are on this uh, all of the above strategy. I really don't think we need to be thinking. I mean, I'm all, all for the nuclear and the modular uh, modular reaction, modular nuclear facilities that could work. Um, I am for absolutely pro-natural gas in terms of putting more natural gas into the grid. Um, and, you know, really, I'm pro-coal. Um, and I have to say that because coal is energy security and we cannot be competing in a global economy if we don't have energy security. You don't necessarily have to use it all at once, but you could stockpile and have it and have it available. Um, and you have to realize that you, um, you, 
every country in the world that has access to coal and cheap coal is going to continue to use it for as long as possible. It includes China and India. Um, so by shutting down our coal-fired power generation here in Colorado, which we are doing left, right, and center, we're not impacting global emissions. Colorado is 0.3% of global emissions. So if we shut down every coal-fired power plant and stopped energy use tomorrow, we are not a drop in the bucket of the global economy, of the global world for emissions. So it is, it is all for naught, and it is just destroying jobs and communities and lives um, that is a, a really, really problematic for the average consumer, the average person, and the state of energy security and the U.S. The, the US stan, stance and power in the world. And with that, I think I should mention, um, I don't know if you, any the folks have seen this, you've probably seen this, that Newsom, the governor, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, has actually went against uh, the environmentalists within California. This is really interesting. It's good for gas producers here in the Rockies who are exporting gas to California. Um, but because of California's blackouts, because of California's serious issues with energy security and their ability to keep the lights on, and basically you... In California, what you're seeing is if you go there, you're seeing incre you see incredibly high gasoline prices, but also you have communities where the electric power and utilities companies are basically telling the communities to not use power at the peak time. So yes, they have power during the day because they have lots of solar and wind, uh, particularly solar, but and it, when it's sunny, it works, but they don't have power at night. So they're basically, they can have peak load issues uh, with that. So they're asking people to not use their power at night. And the reaction was that Gavin Newsom and uh, California have decided to extend the life of, of three natural gas-fired power generation plants within Southern California. And that's really serious because it means they're extended. They were supposed to be done by the end of this year, and they are now extended until at least 2026. So I'm just going to read this for context. This is a Bloomberg article, and it says, Quote, the approved extension means the trio of power plants located along Southern California's coastline, the AES um, Alamitos, the Ormond Beach Generating Station, and the AES Huntington Beach Station will operate through 2026. Previous plans called for them to shut down by year's end. End quote. This is a real case in point, and it's something I, I, I think it is a case in point in terms of what's actually happening in the energy space, what's actually happening on the ground. You know, California can talk the big talk. If you read this article on Bloomberg, they talk, you do hear from environmentalists who are very angry about this about, and they say how, how easy it is uh, to just keep, you know, how easy it is to keep uh, or to bring on natural gas fired power generation, but how hard it is to bring on wind and solar. And, you know, I think those folks need to realize how difficult it is to build anything and they're not building a natural gas fired power generation. They're just not shutting it down. Um, so that is a reality check in terms of what's actually happening. So the difference in terms of what's said and versus what's done. Now, uh, Gavin Newsom said they're still in you know, still on track to hit their 2045 emissions targets. But the reality is, is that near term, you have to be able to turn the lights on. That does mean that you're going to be pulling in natural gas from elsewhere because domestic production is declining dramatically within California. And it also means the reality check, I think, in this context of the economy, and I do want to close by talking about um, the U.S. economy, I think the context of, of rising energy prices or sticky or, or maintained high energy prices um, are really, really important to think about, and the high labor costs and everything are important to think about in the context of the overall economy and how damaging that this is to the consumer, but how it also doesn't work unless your economy is resilient. You know, higher energy prices and higher labor prices and higher goods prices don't work unless you have a resilient economy, and they, are, they can actually, you know, hurt and deteriorate economy, hence why the Fed is trying to fight inflation and why they have to maintain those higher interest rates. And so we now have this tale of 
maintained higher interest rates probably for longer. And we have rising, you know, sticky um, energy prices rising for a number of different reasons, as we've explained. Um, and this does not bode well for the overall economy. It, it really shows some, we're, as we've talked about, some major cracks and weaknesses, not just within the U.S. economy, but within the Chinese economy and the global economy, all on track for a recession. And there was someone on, on, on the market today on CNBC that talked, said, was talking about cheap labor, cheap energy, and cheap goods, and how we're out of that era. And, you know, if you're like me and you spend a lot of your time looking at charts and data and you extend it back and you try to look at pre-2008 and you're looking at 2000s and you're thinking about where were energy prices, where were goods prices, where were service prices, I mean, it's really, really serious. Um, the, I mean, it cannot be underscored enough is that the access to labor. I mean, we have something in the U.S. I think we really do have to appreciate um, in thinking about, and it, I want to close by talking about the Fed minutes, but if you've had, you know, pre-COVID or during COVID, you know, people were going crazy. They were building stuff, but you could still get people to do it. It was expensive, but you could still get people to work on your kitchen or something, you know, or if something broke. Now, if something breaks, you almost can't get anyone to fix it. My air conditioner went out, massive cost to replace my furnace. Um, fortunately, I knew a really uh, a person that I trusted, but the cost was nearly double at what it would have been, you know, pre-COVID. And the ability to get people or that, that company to even maintain the people that they had was difficult. And the actual service side, the actual maintaining of the people led to a lot of delays, led to a lot of problems um, and errors and fixes and everything. Um, if you're thinking about replacing anything or thinking about stuff that's broken, this day-to-day -day maintenance, is now difficult to just get something serviced. And that's because people are not working. So you have to think about, so why are people not working? Partly, you know, there's a lot of money still in the system. So I've talked about that housing lag, right? That massive amount of money that you still, that is, is we still have a lot of money from housing that people have equity that they still have. Um, you have a lot of elder, older folks that would have been in the workforce that retired early that didn't go back to work. Um, and then you have a lot of younger people and a lot of unemployed people still out there. So, I mean, I think people have to pay attention to the unemployment benefits. We so we have still have massive unemployment benefits out there. So people are paid not to work. I mean, the U.S. increased, the Biden administration increased food stamps by one third when he came into office. So we led the world in food inflation because we increased that food stamp program. And yes, there are a lot of people who need help on the food side. Absolutely. But we're talking about massive inflation. When you increase entitlement programs, you have inflation. And so when you also increase that, you disincentivize people to work. And so we have a problem where people are getting paid not to work in this country. And when you actually hear commentators, and I heard this today on multiple news outlets, was that you know, in when you're when we're thinking about the work from home, and we're really starting to see this where businesses are getting are really anxious about this and you're hearing companies like zoom the entity that pioneer you know everybody working from home microsoft you name it all these companies that you know you log on you just do your work from home these are the companies telling people to come back into the office um which is just ironic in and of itself but um, the reason they're telling them to come back in the office is because they're not, these people aren't working and they're not pr productive. And it's having a, a huge impact in terms of real estate because most people are, even the, even the people that are full-time are still spending, um, are only spending, like the majority of their time in the office is still a only a few days in the office. And that means that all the businesses from a commercial real estate standpoint are being impacted and you're going to see a slug of commercial real estate go under. It's taking time, but it's going to happen. That impacts uh, regional banks but that also impacts businesses. So if you see people, that, you know, restaurants that are downtown or in these areas where normally had businesses, there's a knock on impact to that. And so these are all these things sort of accumulating and weighing and, and problematic. And it means also that, so you have all these people working from home, you have people driving, you have people going to the grocery store, you have people more time on their hands. So that lends to the service inflation. So you have a lot of stuff, I think. And then just in overall spending, 
those entitlement programs I talked about, um, that government spending, that means that you know you have a massive amount of government spending still in the system. When you increase those entitlement programs um, and you are have that spend, you have that that inflation in the system. And when you listen to the United Kingdom, they talk about that out loud, where the Bank of England talks about the actual, you know, the government spending. And yet in America, we don't do that. Um, and in the, they are having massive and rampant labor cost inflation within the UK, but you don't hear them complaining about people not going back to work or not going back to the office. We have that here in America. People are just not going back to the office. It is a unique problem. And I think it's going to have lasting implications in terms of productivity, but also in terms of inflation, which are, and, and then in terms of the health of these cities and what's going on. And I will comment on this. I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but I have to, I have to close with, I wanna talk about the Fed minutes um, because they were, uh, you know, they tie into the, the US debt, um, but I wanna talk about Target as well because in terms of the spending, what's going on with the consumer, so we'll close by talking about target earnings. We have Walmart tomorrow, uh, the health of the consumer, the uh, credit card spend that we saw from the Fed, Fed data, um, the New York Fed survey, which or the New York consumer data, which talks about we have $17 trillion in US household debt and talking about the Fed minutes. Now, to close, the Fed minutes, you know, did basically the market was a little nervous because the Fed minutes essentially said that they were open to more rate hikes and they actually, I mean, while most agreed that they should raise rates in the last meeting, which they did, they were actually open to further rate hikes. And then if you read the tea leaves and if you actually read the Fed minutes, there's a lot in there to be concerned about. There's a lot in terms of very sticky inflation. There's a lot in there about actual global problems. And there's a lot in there about both high interest rates and sticky inflation being a problem in the future. So one of the things they said was, quote, respondents to the open market desk survey of primary dealers and survey, mar survey of market participants in July continue to play significant probability of a recession occurring by the end of 2024. So one, they reiterated that. We did hear the recession talk before in a previous minutes, which got folks nervous. And they also say most survey respondents had a, had a model expectation that a July rate hike would be the last of this tightening cycle, although most respondents also perceived that additional monetary policy tightening after the July FOMC meeting was possible. This was a pretty mixed bag. This The the talk and commentary goes a little back and forth, but you essentially, and then you've had Fed guys come out today in the last couple of days, basically saying that we might have to hike rates because of this persistent inflation. Um, I think the stuff on... Stuff that something that the Fed gets into a little bit and what's not articulated, something we're hearing with UK inflation and uh, the Bank of England and others talking about PPI or producer price index or the industrial side and how that's that's coming down and that will f go into the consumer price index and we'll see lower inflation for the consumer. That's actually a bad, it's a leading indicator to a problem. It means that you're not having enough demand on the produce, on you're on not having enough demand on the business side. And so you have lower prices, and that's a, usually a negative economic indicator, not a positive one. So I think we're we're getting some mixed signals here, misinterpretation of that, especially by active you know pundits that are that are on CNBC or on Wall Street. But I think it's important to point this out. The Fed also mentions this, and probably a little more talk about the global side than they normally do. They said, "quote Indicators of economic activity, such as purchasing managers indexes (PMIs), pointed to a step down in the pace of foreign growth in the second quarter, reflecting fading fading of the impetus from China's reopening, continued anemic growth in Europe, um, some weakening of activity in Canada, and Mexico, as well as a weak external demand and the slump in the high tech industry, weighing on many Asian economies." That's really serious, and that gets to the point of this contagion talk that we're talking about in the Asian countries. But the, basically, the Fed is saying we have weakness globally, and that is problematic. Um, the other thing I will note on the China side is that we see this bad China data, and we're talking, and I forgot to mention, you know, hone in on this. 
de deflation is the word that everyone's talking about in China. And that's, that is a big, big problem because when you're seeing deflationary data, that might be slightly positive for the U.S. in terms of they're not exporting inflation. But it means that, one, we're not consuming. So we're not demanding the goods that they're exporting. And we are seeing that both in our import data and their export data. We're not demanding that, which says something about the talks. That's telling us about the health of the U.S. consumer and the U.S. economy. And it's really impacting China. Um, and it's also saying that, so this weakening within China and their lack of exporting goods and that deflation, that deflation, when you have deflation, it means that your debt goes up. So when you have inflation, if I mortgage my house at, you know, if, if somebody mortgaged their house and had a $400,000 mortgage and they mortgaged it, you know, refinanced it at 3% when they were at 4%, they're still paying that maybe whatever, it's $2,000 a month, they're paying that and inflation is up, but they have, have the same mortgage price every month. When you have deflation, that actual price goes up. So in normal terms, those, the, that value of the, that debt is going up. So when you think of the local government debt and you think of the overall Chinese debt and everything you're hearing, that means it's going, it's actually bigger in real terms. So that is a major, major problem um, that's not, it's not well understood, so it's not well discussed within the market. Okay, so that's the last bit on China. I'll tell Although I think it also is important important to point out that China has uh, the the treasuries and the purchase of U.S. treasuries has really come off, um, and I think that's you know it's saying a few things, but I do think it means they they want less exposure to the U.S. in case of a decoupling, in case of anything that could be just precautionary, but it could also be hey if we do something with Taiwan or we do anything or we want to decouple, we have the opportunity. Okay, so lastly with U.S. household debt, and this this has been really bugging me because I've heard about the strength of the. The female consumer is driving the market. I don't know if you saw the on on New York Times or whatever newsfeed was popping up on my iPhone over the weekend was um you know Beyonce to Taylor Swift to the Barbie movie is that people are spending in droves and ex experiences and it's just amazing. Well, people spending as I mentioned does not equate to a healthy consumer, and we see this in the household the household uh, debt which has reached over seven seventeen trillion dollars. We see the credit card debt has gone up north of a trillion. And we've seen student loan debt is up, auto loan debt is up. So when you add all the non-household mortgage, when you add all the non-mortgage debt up, it is about $4.6 trillion. Really, really high. And it's rising. And we've seen, if you look at the actual credit card debt, you see that um, it the expansion of ability to spend on credit cards has risen. Um, and we're seeing, obviously, rising credit card debt. And the average credit card interest right now is 23%. So spending on credit cards means that the consumer is not that healthy. It means that the consumer probably has flexibility in their work from home life balance, but they are spending on credit cards because of the, um, they don't have the money. And so that does have to come home to roost, whether it doesn't mean you have to have a crash in credit cards or credit or liquidity issues. It means that the uh, if somebody loses their job, things start getting really tricky. And this is all working because everything's moving and it's going forward, but it works until it doesn't, until the music stops and somebody doesn't have a chair. And so I think we really have to be thinking about what it means when somebody loses their job and all these people that, you know, a lot of we hear a lot of talk on the housing side that people want to sell their homes, but they can't, be, or they want to move, but they can't because they can't replace that low, inter that low mortgage payment. What happens when they have to? And I think that's that's really, really important is what happens when, when you saw housing crash in 2008, there were a lot of different reasons for that, but people were losing their jobs. And um, and then you had adjustable rate mortgages and the interest rate go up and it was crazyville. Now you ha now you actually have people buying, uh, you, buying houses on adjustable rate mortgages because it's cheaper. That has consequences in the future are problematic. All of this is going on. You have so much noise in the market. It is really, really difficult for me to say, yeah, I am bullish on the economy and therefore I'm bullish on oil prices. So there's a lot of reasons that oil prices 
can maintain stability, but it is not because of the health of the U.S. or the global economy. And um, I should close on that, but I have to close on one last thing, and that is the target earnings call. Um, it is worth a read. I think it is fascinating, the stuff that they put in there. Um, Target continues to talk about, I mean, they actually talked about all the negative stuff with regards to um, what's going on within the culture within the U.S. So they did have, they talk about um, the crime within within the U.S. and they talk about the shrink. So basically they, they said that crime was up or organized theft or organized crime and theft was up 120% in the first five months of the year. And they basically reiterated that they would have the same shrink or loss in revenue from this theft that they're receiving, or the, the theft that Target is getting, and that is $1.3 trillion um, that they are exposed to on law, or sorry, $1.3 billion, not trillion, $1.3 billion, so it's $500 million plus another $300 million, um, or $400 million that they added, and they keep adding to these numbers, and said they were going to maintain that number. That's a massive loss for a, a, for a company of just from pure theft. That says a lot about what's going on within, you know, what's going on within these stores. And, you know, if you listen to analysts and pundits, they talked about, you know, the pushback on, on uh, they had the pushback on their pride displays. Uh, Target talks about that a lot within the earnings call, which is kind of amazing about how they had to make some changes within their um, displays, about how they're still selling their products um, and how they had to, they're working with that. And then they talk a lot about the consumer. They talk about the Barbie movie. Um, they talk about the theft. They talk about um, the lack of people spending, but they talk about pumping up stuff on the Barbie movie. They talk about Stanley cups and different colors and everything. I mean, it is a really interesting earnings call. Um, and then you, if you listen to the market reaction is basically saying, hey, if we, you, if you're listening to last call um, on CNBC, um, you're hearing them say, okay, if we separate all the political stuff outside of Target, what is their valuation? And I thought it was really interesting in terms of their price to the PE ratios on Target. They're saying, hey, they're basically in line with what they should be. And, you know, Target weakness, part of it is forget the political stuff. I think the theft is really, really serious. And it's serious when you're hearing about, you know, companies like Walmart who leave cities like Chicago and Portland because of the crime, because the, the theft is so high and they're losing money. But I think it's really important when you're thinking about how is that consumer doing? I mean, it was the middle, upper middle income consumer that was shopping at Target. So, or not, not necessarily upper middle, but they weren't the bottom middle of the consumer. They were the higher end of the middle side. Now, Walmart is capturing a massive share. I have, I have recently shopped at Walmart. I don't normally, I'm extremely frustrated that in Colorado, if you forget a trash bag, you, if you forget a bag that you have, you don't have a bag option within Walmart, you have to buy these very expensive bags that drives me absolutely bananas. Um, but I can tell you that a lot of people are trading down um, in, buying and shopping at Walmart because it is so much cheaper. And Walmart has a significant share, and this is, goes to the they'll have earnings tomorrow, but Walmart has a significant share of the grocery market, like 25%. And so the margins on groceries are much thinner, but it means that they can attract people to their store and for them, hopefully attract people into their store that are going to buy other stuff. And so there's taking that that share from Walmart or from Target. And then if Target is, you know, had more expensive stuff or and people aren't spending on discretionary, that all makes sense that they'd be losing that. I thought it was an interesting that, you know, but if if Walmart's doing great and if Target is not doing great and if TJ Maxx is doing great, that tells you about the health of the cons the, the economy in the US. It means that people are trading down. Um, and that that to me is not a positive sign for the US economy, especially when you put that in the context of the credit card debt that I was just talking to. And that is what I'll end on. I will tell you that the PE ratios, I think, are way, way too high. Right now you have Walmart at tw almost 25. It's 24.79. You have TJ Maxx at 24.27, I think that's incredibly high. And you have Target at 15.99. So people are saying, oh, maybe Target's a buy. 
when you have all those issues with those companies, I don't know about that. I'm not advising on the stock purchases, but I think in terms of what it means for the health of the US economy, it is not painting a pretty picture. So with that folks, um, I, that seems a little pessimistic, but knowledge is power and um, you can be ahead of the markets and ahead of the curve with Petronerds. So thank you so much for listening. Um, the latest podcast with Carl Rove um, and uh, Harold Hamm have had outstanding reviews and have been playing really, really well. So thank you so much, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.